I just received the uh, comment cards from the first screening of my new film, Tough Guys Don't Dance. Bold, innovative, wonderful. Stinks. My power has been going like on and off all day. Like, for like brief spurts, but for some reason I never lose internet, so okay. um, we'll see. I think it's over, but we'll see. All right, I mean, and... there's like winds knocking down like small trees in my neighborhood right now. Like, remember the last time we recorded <laughs> I said it's been really windy in LA? Like, it's still like that some days for some reason. Oh. Then other days it's like brushing up against 90 degrees. There's also a helicopter like three blocks away. I can kind of see it out my window right now. And they've been calling out for someone to come out for a while. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff going on, which is maybe the most suitable atmosphere to record uh, an episode retrospective on the film Tough Guys Don't Dance for the Failed Awards Retrospectives, fa Failed Award Contender Retrospective. Yeah, rolls right off the tongue. Here, here also, on the Waffle Press Podcast. Apologies that was uh, that this became our intro because I was also fumbling with my mic a little bit, so you're definitely going to have to edit around. Nah, nah, I'll just use a Zoom backup. No editing. All right. Fuck yeah, it. Let's do it live. Do it live. Um, fuck it. I hope, I hope the situation several blocks away is resolved peacefully. I'm your host, <laughs> yes. Diego Crespo. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure that the LAPD are only calling out for someone to like give them an award. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm not going to make the worst possible jokes right now. They're trying to award someone the key to the city. It's fine. Oh, don't worry. That's just fireworks. The background. Oh no! <laughs> so close, Macaringo. <laughs> Sorry. Um. <coughs> Police brutality is not a joke. <laughs> Jesus <Sorry>. Christ, Diego! <laughs> oh God. Um, I mean that's kind of related to the film. <laughs> I, I know. Um. Tough Guys Don't Dance, the 1997 crime mystery comedy drama film written and directed by Norman Mailer based on his, no his own novel. Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Norman Mailer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A guy who once tried to murder his wife in public. What? Um, yes. <laughs> what is happening at the beginning of this episode? Uh, uh, well, we kind of have to get out of the way that Norman Mailer like, kind of sucked as a person. I know nothing about Norman Mailer. Um, he is a Pulitzer Prize winning <laughs> writer, uh, and, uh, he was, uh, believe it or not, Diego, <laughs> the guy who wrote Tough Guys Don't Dance, um, seemed to have a weird relationship with women. <laughs> I saw that coming. And, uh, there's an entire documentary, which is just him yelling at feminists, called, like, Bloody Town Hall or something like that. Uh, he... He's one of those guys, what's the opposite, like, you know, like how we talk about, like, certain artists or movies have been, like, reclaimed by people? Yeah. <laughs> what is the opposite of that? Discarded? We don't I have guess. a term Normally for that was... We haven't really gotten there. Discarded is kind of just, like, abandoned, though, but it's like, it's like, no, we drugged Norman Mailer back up to be like, fuck this guy, and then throw him away. Oh, okay. Like, that's what it feels like has happened. I think it was one of those things where, like, he's one of those authors, he dealt with a lot of, like, like overt, like, sexual themes and, like, talked about, uh, 
he had like a lot of characters that were not very appealing. <laughs> and I think people like later just kind of went like, oh, he was writing about himself. Like, <laughs> which I don't even know how true that is. I'm not like a Norman Mailer expert, but uh, there hasn't been a great uh, push for me to actually read a lot of his material. I know Norman Mailer mostly from the documentary uh, uh, When We Were Kings about the Ali uh, versus Foreman fight. Oh, okay. Because he's interviewed in that. And when you hear him talk, you get why he had the influence he had. Like, he can... He's honestly, like, a very poetic speaker and can, like, really get an image in your head and break shit down. And he's he's, he's kind of fascinating, but, like, I think, uh, by most accounts, was not a great person. Yeah. Okay, so it's... it's... Also married, like, seven times. Oh. Like, something crazy like that. Hmm. See, James Cameron so. gets away with it because he makes shit like Titanic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Norman Mailer made Tough Guys Don't If dance. Norman Mailer made True Lies, then I think everyone oh would be my. okay with him. Um, That's a joke. No. 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 <laughs> this also, I'm not sure if you know this, this is not like a one-and-done film by Norman Mailer. He's directed like three other movies. Before or after this? Before. That makes sense. Okay. All were made before, and all of them are, are... I've never seen them. The Criterion Collection put them out in, like, a Norman Mailer collection at one point. That is um, incredible. I, this this I is... Mean, I'm not going to go on a huge tangent here, but that's super funny because, you know, the worst people on film Twitter are always like, that can't go in the Criterion Collection. They're, they're selling out. And it's like, hey, sometimes you got to sell out a little bit to keep the lights on, you know? Yeah. Um, that just, like, kills all the arguments of, like, elitism that people try to uphold with the Criterion Collection. That is yeah. that is amazing. Well, doesn't doesn't the Criterion Collection, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe most of the Criterion Collection is made up of movies that, like, are basically given to them. Like, they can't even really fight for what they want. I, I don't you know? know all the details about it. Um, and I'm not shitting on the Criterion Collection. I'm shitting on the people that kind of hold them up as, like, the standard for cinema. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't. I don't always buy Criterion's. I, I really look for stuff that has special features I can't get anywhere else, like my mm. my long lost, now out of print, uh, Days of Heaven, fucking Criterion. Oh. Yeah, it's killing. It's like a hundred and fifty dollars on eBay right now, and it just keeps going up. Uh, that's yeah. brutal. I'll get it one day when I sell my blood. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but I, I, sorry, you know, that, it, that, that was a weird tangent. But I just need to vent that out. You never know, it might come back around and end up in the Criterion Collection again. Uh, <laughs> who uh, knows? Disney, Fox, or someone and, owns the right, so they, they pulled it. Yeah, but you, you, who knows? Who knows where the culture's going? You're right. Like, Anything's possible. I could, I, I could see if Disney's like, we can make like five more dollars if we did this, I could see them doing it. Like mm-hmm. When they're desperate because they've now all the IP has been drained. Yeah, they'll keep trying to make other stuff, though. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, and I just want to say, all of his earlier films are described as experimental and independent films from, like, the late 60s. And almost all of them, when I looked them up, because I haven't seen them, and I just, like, briefly looked them up on Letterboxd, and, like, all the top reviews are, like, one star, <laughs> one half star, like, so, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I uh, think um, part of the reason so much of, like, our generation started rejecting like the older experimental films is because of stuff like this movie for the people that did see it. Right. 
when really mm-hmm. like the, the great like experimental artists like Stan Brakhage and David Lynch when they do when he does his short films you know like that's that's like true like experimental art this feels like someone did a whole lot of cocaine and watched <laughs> all of Twin Peaks but this film was made in 1987 Twin Peaks doesn't come out for another two years a year after Blue Velvet, so oh I, I, oh there it is. Never mind. <laughs> but but the book that it is based on was from before. But I think there's definitely an influence. Yeah, I mean Isabella I mean, Rossellini's in it. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, what's his name did the music. Whoa, um, Angelo yeah. Badalamenti. Oh, yes, Angelo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, and did you notice? Uh, Weird shit starts in this movie, like, right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, it's because... impossible not to notice. Yeah, but it's like the opening credits are weird. Because one of the executive producers is Francis Coppola. And you're like, hmm, is this, like, someone trying to capitalize off the name? Like, why isn't it Francis Ford Coppola? And you Google it, and it is Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> but for some reason, he's credited as just Francis Coppola. And you're like, why? <laughs> Probably to hide involvement. But, you know, the, the official Maybe. production companies are Zoetrope Studios and Golan Globus. Now, we've talked about Golan, Golan Globus, Globus before, going back to our Spider-Man episodes, and we just talk about canon films often, because yeah. they're very much films for people like us. <laughs> yes. Oh, was... and, and for those who aren't in the know, canon films basically produce schlock. But, like, schlock that would make schlock go, like, holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know what? A lot of it is real fun to watch. Yes. Um, a lot of it is just, just wild. If, if it's like a late night and you like everyone's kind of slap happy, it's, it's a good movie to yeah, put on. Yeah, I mean, Tobe Hooper's career anything. in the 80s is like almost exclusively canon films. Yes, and they clearly just let him do whatever he Yeah, wants. which is why they all rock. Even the ones that aren't like great movies, mm-hmm. they're totally worth checking out. It's weird that like... It, Golden Globes are so weird because they, like, sucked at producing movies, kind of. Like, they didn't produce a whole lot of quality. But they they seem to have respect for certain artists because, like, to- all of Toby Hooper's movies with them, like, bombed, but they kept giving him money. Mm-hmm. You know, which is kind of nuts. And this, in particular, is from that weird little window where Cannon was trying to, like, court, like, um, auteur directors. And they produced some, like, big-name films, and like including, like, I believe John Cassavetti's, like, second-to-last film was produced by Canon Films. Wow. And they really thought that they were eventually going to produce something that would win them an Oscar. And I think Tough Guys Don't Dance was probably caught up in that. And also, Norman Mailer is famously in... The, in the King Lear adaptation that was made by Jean-Luc Godard, which was also produced by Canon Films. Um, did you know that? I did that? not know that. Uh, I believe Norman Mailer plays Norman Mailer in it. <laughs> and, and he's like, he plays Norman Mailer and King Lear, and he like walked off the set after two days because him and Jean-Luc Godard didn't get along. <laughs> so like, all the footage that is in there is just what he had. <laughs> um... That movie is, like, impossible to watch. And it also features uh, uh, Menachem Golan uh, Menachem calling Jean-Luc Godard, a message he left on Jean-Luc Godard's uh, phone where he was just like, "You're what the fuck are you doing? This movie's taking fucking too long. 
That's like the opening credits to that Well, here, movie. So, speaking of stuff that's impossible to watch, we should also mention that Tough Guys Don't Dance is basically impossible to watch unless you stumble upon it on YouTube in its full form, but I wouldn't recommend you do that ever. Of course not. Yeah. Um, and a website called Screen Picks. Yeah. I, which we, we've we never heard of, but... We never heard of, but it was like, we almost did that, but then maybe we found another way to watch it that was currently mentioned, but... um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can get it through Amazon Prime. Although, we are going to go through... My goal is to explain the plot of this movie. Good luck. <laughs> to explain what the fuck happened. And I might have given up sometime in the last, like, 20 minutes. <laughs> but I tried my damnedest. <laughs> and so you do not need to watch this to understand this episode. I would, um, I would actually, something... for people that love discovering, like, just huge on-screen disasters mm-hmm. I, I think it's totally worth a watch it's it is worth a, it, a single watch is, maybe maybe single watch but i do think this movie kind of nears like the room quality in terms of just befuddlement yeah <laughs> like, and there are points of the movie where i was just like okay what well, like i i can't keep up with it and it does get a little dull but i like yeah I, I think we're even underselling just how fucking bizarre this is. Like within five minutes, it it oh, is yeah. unbelievable. The only way I was able to untangle it, and this is like my second time watching it, so I've seen the fucking movie because uh, this was my suggestion for the show. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, and I was like, why the fuck uh, did do you do this? <laughs> <laughs> we needed something to lighten the yeah. movie. <laughs> Um, I don't regret this, uh, by the way. I'm excited to keep talking about it, but like, you can always sort of tell how a movie's like what what a movie's gonna be like. Um, check out the the opening credits. I got oh, flashbacks yeah. to like Star Trek Five, um, yes. <laughs> which is like you know William Shatner's director uh, shot for that franchise. Mm-hmm. And when I was revisiting it for a, another Star Trek podcast I had done, uh, go check it out at Talk Film Society. Everyone had a lot of fun over there, and uh, uh, it's just great to talk about Star Trek. But when I was rewatching for the first time, I was like, you know, these these like images and these compositions are like pretty good. I expected a lot worse. And then like five minutes goes by, and you're still just cutting to separate like rock climbing images in Star Trek Five. And I was like, <laughs> okay, dude, like. You got to start the movie now. Like, come on. This is what the end credits are for. It almost gives this movie, like, a weird rhythm to it, you know? <laughs> what about like... that? I'll, I'll go let you no, finish, no, like, I, I, I no, you're so, I, I honestly am fascinated with writers who try to be directors. Like, um, it's usually more pronounced with, like, someone like when Stephen King tried to direct a movie... <laughs> Or, like, Clive Barker is, like, very successful at that with, like, his horror films. But there's something to them, like, not understanding the film craft, like, filmmaking first. Like, they're writers first and foremost. Not, like, script is king writers, but, like, descriptive and, like, how you can kind of structure stuff nonlinearly. And it leads to, I think, fascinating results that kind of lead to, like, moments where you're, like... This is kind of like accidentally inspired, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think there are moments in this, uh, 
but like n- not enough to save the film. Although this is definitely a movie that someone on film Twitter will give five stars. <laughs> like it is a hundred percent that. A little, yeah, yeah. That that yeah. makes sense. Uh, I, I'll um, say there there are definitely moments of like atmosphere and mood. You know, like like maybe mm-hmm. it's just because of of that's how like movies used to be made, like with certain film stocks and the lighting equipment was so different. Like here's the thing about like people saying like movies don't look like movies now, which I am also guilty of. It's definitely reliant on like the new lighting and cameras that we use and certain people not understanding how to utilize them differently. You know, like the John Wick movies use a lot of the same equipment that other generic action movies do. Now what separates John Mm -hmm. Wick from being generic is the incredible talent involved from the page to behind the, the camera to the people in front of the camera uh, and also knowing how to frame fight scenes and utilize lighting for dramatic purposes. Yeah. Know? And other people I just mean, can't it'll... figure that out. And so I think Tough Guys Don't Dance has, like, you know, it's like, okay, they can... Whoever did the lighting on this, like, good job. There you go. I don't know if, it would... I don't know if I'm just going to go... <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to say Okay, that. maybe not good job, but, but, like, okay, you made a movie. But, like, the... I don't know how to explain this, but, like, the way Provincetown is shot in this... It's, I like like I feel like anything I could say would give the movie more credit than I'm trying to give it. <laughs> like, it's not dreamlike, but it's like almost like a weird nostalgia to it. If that makes sense, like that, I I I'd it, agree with that, and I would say like dreamlike. It, it definitely feels like something I dreamt up in a fever dream. Like I yeah. think that's that's the thing. like not in an exciting or positive manner. It's just like what the fuck was that about. Like, that's really the extent of of positivity I think you and I can both give the film, right? Maybe, but, like, uh, to me, there's something to it where it's, like, um, when I was younger, um, I went to the beaches around Delaware a lot, which is very different than Provincetown, of course, but, you know, like, how you have, like, very, you know, like, moments from your childhood you know happen, but, like, in your mind you only have, like, very, like, like, flashed memories of it, you know? Like, you can only kind of remember a single moment, and then they all kind of blend together, so, like, you don't know if it was a separate occasion or the same occasion. And then you see pictures of yourself at, like, the beach or something, and you're like, I don't remember this picture being taken, I don't remember this day, but there's photographic proof that it happened. (laughs) Um, Tough Guys Don't Dance gives me a similar feeling to that in some moments. And I think maybe beaches just do it for me like that. Like, it it might not be anything to do with the film itself. Mm Um, but it, there's, there's something mesmerizing about it. I don't think we, either of us will deny that. Yeah. Um, and that's where I got to get two things across before we start going into the plot. Um, uh, one is that there's, there were uncredited rewrites. Oh no, I think credited, credited rewrites by Robert Town, mm-hmm. <laughs> who wrote Chinatown, <laughs> um, which might explain some of the weirdness to it. Um, and the other thing is I'm going to make a comparison here. Um, and I have to be very careful with how I phrase it because I'm about to compare this. I'm about to compare the experience of watching this film to the work of another filmmaker. And I'm not trying to equate the morality of this film (laughs) or the morality of the filmmaker. Like by all accounts, the person whose name I'm about to throw out is a good guy, but watching, if you want to know how I feel when I sit down to watch a Zack Snyder (laughs) film, Watch Tough Guys Don't Dance. <laughs> the the stuff this movie did to my brain is exactly what Zack Snyder films do to me. <laughs> I just gotta be honest. 
Wow. Where, yeah, I'm, 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 and again, I'm not trying to equate like on a moral mm-hmm. level, just like the weird like every sentence like has a meaning to it, but also is something no one in history has ever said. Like, <laughs> and I will say to watch this, like I said, I took four, four pages of detailed notes on the plot of this movie. So we'd be ready for this episode to get those, uh, four pages. This is a movie that is just under an hour and 50 minutes to do that. It took two nights of watching this movie <laughs> in two separate two-hour chunks. Because <laughs> I kept having to pause the movie to write down what was happening. And that was the only way for me to keep up with it. <laughs> I'm assuming you just you just went through it in one go. I did just go through it in one go. Um, and Which is I, like, I think that that's what made it like entertaining to me. Because yes. I was very entertained. Um, it, it is a flabbergasting experience, though. Yeah. I I don't even know where to start. Um, Let's start at the very beginning. Yeah, the, like I mentioned, the opening credits go on for like a long, long while. I'm well, it opens with I, um, Ryan O'Neal, uh, who is playing a guy named Tim, right? Mm-hmm. Tim Madden. Um, he says something like, I keep saying to myself, death is a celebration. Now, Diego, having watched the film, <laughs> do you know what that means? No, because this is a murder mystery, and mm-hmm. I, I I don't get the sense that there's, like, the film's heading in any specific direction with that opening line, you know? Sometimes a movie can open, and the opening lines aren't, like, that important. You know, they'll still inform you of character or, like, the, the state of the, the world we're about to experience, right? But sometimes mm-hmm. they're, they're very specific, and other times they're not. They're just... A, Sometimes they give us, like, a thesis statement on the film you're about to yeah. watch, you know? and I feel like this uh, film tried to do that thesis statement, for sure. I could not <laughs> tell you what it was, though. I might have an answer, but I'm going to have to read my notes okay. again. <laughs> so we'll see if we find one by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, we get... It's, like, a, it's a lot of shots of <laughs> New England landscapes. Yeah. Like... It, it goes like, to the point where my notes are literally like New England landscapes, all caps, tough guys don't dance, and then more New England landscapes. Uh, uh, Tim, when he wakes up and he, he walks down, uh, he's he's very defensive. We don't know what, what's what's happened, why he's so defensive. Yeah, he gets a, uh, I think he gets like a fire poker or something. Yeah, yeah, and then he, he walks into his kitchen and he meets... Um, he sees Lawrence Tierney and like immediately gets relaxed, which is something that has never happened. <laughs> To someone who woke up and found Lawrence Tierney in their house. Yeah, now, if you don't know who Lawrence Tierney is, uh, Elaine's dad from Seinfeld. He's only in one episode. Was, yeah, because they, they never brought him back because he was such a nut. Yeah. Uh, also, <laughs> more commonly known, I think, for people uh, as The Thing from Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> it's not his character's name, but he's referred to as The Thing. Motherfucker looks like The Thing. Yeah. And that is incredibly accurate. Yeah, and he was also someone where, like, I think him and, like, Tarantino got in a fist fight on that movie. That makes total sense. Which, who knows sense. what that even means, but, that, um... Yeah. And I think Lawrence Tierney had to be bailed out of prison to film, like, his last few scenes. Yeah. Because he got drunk and fired a gun at, like, his son's, like, apartment. Jesus Christ, yeah. Um, he had a lot of, uh, personal 
issues. A lot of demons. And it says a lot that he seems to very clearly be the Norman Mailer, like, stand-in in the film. Mm. <laughs> like, I think Norman Mailer is, like, this is the author surrogate <laughs> character. Um, so, yeah, Lawrence Tierney is Tim's father. Um, and he's like, you've been acting weird. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's not going to get any better from here. <laughs> um, and we find out that Tim's wife, Patty Lorraine, um, left him 28 days ago. Did he, I can't remember the opening shot. Did he do the shaving cream thing yet? None the opening shot, but, I don't think. Okay. Um, and Lawrence Tierney says, you married the wrong gal. That's all. You should have married the other one. It's like, oh, boy. <laughs> um, and then he says, all right, here's, like, the... F- I wrote down every line that, like, kind of jumped out at me. So you just, just wrote like, the script? What? <laughs> yes. Um, so we're going to be here a while. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. So here's a line from Lawrence Tierney. Um, <laughs> so I apologize for what I'm about oh, to say. Oh, God. It's going to happen a few times. Because the wildest line in this movie is, like, also the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but... Um, he says, certain dame should wear a t-shirt that says, hang around, I'll make a cocksuck out of you. <laughs> Which is the first, like, homophobic reference in the film. There's a lot of... This movie wrestles with masculinity, Diego. Does it? And when you when you think about it, it's this. that's all this movie really is. It's a statement about masculinity, and that's why it's genius. I'm here to have fun. I'm getting very upset right now. No, no, I, I definitely, like, everything we're going to talk about, like, what we think the movie's about, it's definitely going to try to be that. It's mm-hmm. it's just, you know, here's, no, here's another basic comparison. It reminds me of rewatching David Lynch's Dune, where it's like, there are moments in there where I'm like, you know, there's, there might be something here in more capable hands, or, like, uh, if a production had run more smoothly. We know David Lynch is capable of, like, masterpieces. I, I don't think Norman Mailer ever was... <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. Like I said, I don't know enough about Norman Mailer, but yeah, um, there's there's a lot of uh, references to homosexuality in this film, which seems to be a popular thing of a lot of the writers of his generation. Like that seemed to be a thing, uh, which I think they 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 try to frame it as like an interrogation of masculinity. But it, it, whenever I see it, it always seems to just come back around to being like, and this is why men are the way they are. Dudes rock. Which, no, <laughs> no, but it's like it's it's usually comes down very hard on dudes suck, but there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so stop trying to fight it. Boys will be boys. Like immediately after that statement, um, Lawrence Tierney says he was always worried that Tim would quote turn out queer, and says his mother babied him too much. And then Tim mentions that he was in prison for three years, and he says I was in prison for three years, but never turned quote unquote punk. Which, you know, yeah, it's awful. I'm assuming everyone knows what that means. Um, all right. Just... And now, you know, you know how, like, movies, you're kind of waiting for, like, the title drop to happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this one happens within the first five minutes. Because <laughs> then Lawrence Tierney, I can't even remember what prompts it. Oh, Lawrence Tierney starts drinking, and his son's like, you, you're supposed to stop drinking. Like, why are you drinking? And once you go, six months ago, they told me to stop or I was dead. I stopped. Now the spirits circle around my bed and tell me to dance. I tell them, tough guys, don't dance. They answer me, keep dancing. 
what are we? Some kind of tough guys don't dance. <laughs> no, it, it the escalation of dialogue in this is honestly kind of worth commending because it makes no sense. But yeah. and, and like the way we're gonna be describing it, because my my favorite part when I knew I was at least gonna enjoy this movie is the flashback scene we lead into. But like, it really is just one of the most well, which bizarre flashback? things. Flashbacks. There's flashbacks inside of flashbacks. Yeah, the, the, the first one, the one when when okay. uh, Tim is like, "Oh, it was one one crazy idiotic summer." It's like I've, I've never heard <laughs> someone describe the summer that way, but okay. Uh, Immediately cut to like a coke. Yeah, happening. and then the 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 one woman's like, "Oh, that's my boyfriend." She immediately disrobes, and, and yeah. then she opens the door and she's like, "Oh, sorry, because it's not her boyfriend. It's it's, it's uh, Wings Hauser." Wings Hauser, who uh. uh this you people have to guess, but we'll be making another appearance on our on our retrospective series. Wait, does he? Yeah, he does. Uh, don't tell me. I'm I'm gonna look it up right now. He has one scene in one movie we're planning on doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, rubber, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wingshauser, um, in his full police chief uniform, um, as Alfred Luther Regency, a.k.a. Mr. Regency. <laughs> um, and he comes in on this coke party um, to, to address a noise complaint or something like that. And they just, they go like, no, come on, stay. And he gets talked into staying as long as they like keep the music down. And we very clearly see a scene where like all the coked up maniacs are dancing. But guess who isn't dancing? Mr. Regency. <laughs> oh, because he's a tough guy. Because he's a tough guy, and he walks over to Tim, who is also sitting on the stairs, uh, not dancing. And we kind of get, uh, there's some, I can't tell if, like, they sit down and then immediately in this conversation, or if the movie's trying to imply they, like, talked all night or something I'm like not that. sure, too, because it's like this weird crossfade where they're, they're not talking to each other, and I don't think they knew each other before this, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to yeah. tell. And, and then... Because one character... Well, who we'll get to, who feels like was like just introduced out of nowhere. It turns out had a relationship with him, like going back to like their school yeah, days. Yeah, I, I know it's it's really a lot to keep track of. Like, we we can't parse too much out of it. We do have to explain it, but we can't parse through too much through it because I think our brains will melt out of our ears. Uh, but yeah, yeah the, the crossfade into like them just talking on the stairs. I was like, whoa, 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 wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> this is this is kind of a lot to throw at someone. Immediately followed. By uh, Patty Lorraine coming down the stairs and blowing a trumpet. Yeah, and Tim says like these parties aren't for me; they're for Patty Lorraine. And then she starts just playing the trumpet on the stairs. And the shot doesn't change, by the way. It's so strange. And uh, I think this is when Tim he says, "You trying to wake up all the ghosts in Helltown?" Which you're like, what? <laughs> And it takes you a minute, you're like, okay, Provincetown, Helltown is the opposite of Provincetown, I guess, but, like, who talks yeah, like it's this? Yeah, it's such a stretch, you know? And then do you remember what Patty Lorraine says next? Oh, I don't. All right, you ready for this one? <laughs> um, I can't remember what exactly leads into it, but, uh, oh, I think, because she's, uh, she's a blonde. Oh, and... yeah, <laughs> Someone asks, I think Mr. Regency asks if she's like a natural blonde or something. And this is exactly what she says. Again, apologies. This is what the episode is going to be. 
She goes, my pussy hair was bright gold in high school until I went out and scorched it with the football team. <laughs> I don't even... Script doctored by Robert Town, everyone. This is the, the first... Uh, this is the first named female character in the film with any lines. <laughs> the first, I think, line is given to that woman who just immediately gets naked, and then this is the other character. Yeah, which I, I don't know uh, what the, the, the nakedness... Like, I guess people do weird stuff on coke. I've never done it. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. like, I, I assume everyone just gets all, like, wired up, right? But this is, th- I yeah, don't... I, I never seen anyone strip this publicly. Is something... From it. This is it's hard to tell if this is something Norman Mailer might have witnessed at a Coke party he went to, or if this is something he always wished happened at a Coke party he went to. <laughs> um right, I don't even know how to get to this. Because like almost immediately after that the party like ends, and then we just cut to Halloween, where Patty Lorraine has talked him into performing a seance. <laughs> Because they want to communicate with two dead women who were murdered um, in Provincetown. <laughs> now, that is that flashback a flash, bo- flash forward from the original flashback? I don't remember. I remember the scene, but I don't remember how they get there. No, this has to be forward because it's October 31st, and we're told at some point that Patty Lorraine left him, like, the day after, November 1st. Yeah, see, all this stuff, like, like blends the... together, but I, I, yeah. we're gonna be talking about, like, all the weird shit in it. I want to talk about one of my other favorite moments in the movie, when they flash mm. forward back to uh, Tim and his dad talking, mm. and he's like, <laughs> we had to perform a seance, or no, uh, I don't want to talk about it. And then immediately he's like, at Halloween we performed a seance. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that is about, I believe, ten minutes into the film. All of what we just described is the first ten minutes of the film. Yes. It's wild. <laughs> like, we have, and it doesn't we have stop. No, it's, and, you're, and it's one of those things, again, like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to make the Zack Snyder comparison, but it's just like, when I see his movies, like, stuff will happen in them, and I'm I, 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 like, is this going to be important, or is this just something he thought would be cool to put in the movie? <laughs> You know, like, I have that a lot. And this is one of those things where I'm like, this all can't be important. (laughs) And it turns out it is. The seance ends up being one of the most important things. And it's like a very brief, weird scene. You're damn right we're going to have a seance. Because those two dead horrors keep whispering to me. Oh, yes. (laughs) Also, Pagelerine called herself a witch earlier, which I'm guessing... I don't know. Like, that's the thing. Is it is it's, it just, like, rich white people kind of, like, like proclaiming these things? Or are we genuinely supposed to believe that she has practiced, like, witchcraft in the universe of this film? Yeah. But I also think it's Norman Mailer trying to be like, look, I'm a literary scholar guy. Because there's a, a, a lot of this plot ends up being driven by, like, trying to avoid what the seance revealed for Patty Lorraine. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, is, like, a classic, like, trope from, like, mythology and shit, like, and it, it, but, like, why? (laughs) You didn't need it. The funniest fucking thing is when they finally cut to it, and she, I know it's, like, a, a, I'm sure it's, like, a witchcraft pose or something, like, I don't know anything about, actually, like, people trying witchcraft, but it's the goofiest fucking cut, 
because she like she macks on Tim for a second to calm him down or whatever. And then they cut to her with her arms raised like a T pose. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> like like I think people assume editing is like a lost art form. And it's like, no, there have always been movies that have been poorly edited. Cause like the cut from that kiss to that pose is mm-hmm. is really jarring. It might be one of the most jarring cuts I've ever experienced. And there's a lot of that in this movie. Like mm-hmm. every five to ten minutes. <laughs> Um, all right, so after the seance, uh, Pamela Lorraine is like, all right, I'm leaving you, Tim. Um, and she's leaving Tim for her driver named Bolo. <laughs> I'm only bringing this up because there's a shot in this where she goes, she's like leaving the room. She goes, Bolo. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> and then it's like, oh, that's the guy's name. <laughs> um, and we find out that Tim used to, was her driver at one point. And so there's, like, a weird, like, uh, like, cyclical nature of things, like, which it also feels like Provincetown is kind of, like, supposed to be, like, this purgatory of sorts, and, like, Tim is, like, stuck going in this loop, um, but he talks to Bolo (laughs) and says, uh, that he used to be your driver, and that, uh, he, she, the real reason Patty Lorraine is leaving is because she wanted him to kill her husband, um, but he he said he couldn't do it. Um, and I, the husband's name, I don't believe they say his name yet, but I'm just going to throw it out there because you can't follow the plot unless I say his name now. Um, her her ex-husband, Wardley Meeks Third, who will come back into the plot, played by the guy who, uh, he's in The Abyss. You remember that? No, but I haven't seen The Abyss in years. He's the guy who, uh, like, he ends up in a coma for most of the movie mm. because he had, like, an underwater freakout, and then, like, later when he wakes up, he's like, I just thought I was dying when that angel came at me. And, uh, yeah, I think that's the only other film of note he's really done. <laughs> what are you talking about? He did Super Troopers. Oh, okay. You know what? I've never seen Super Troopers. I haven't either. I'm just looking at his Wikipedia. <laughs> I know some people, like, swear by that fucking movie. Yeah, but sometimes people swear by shit that they saw when they were, like, ten, and they have yeah. blinders on. Which but is I fine. Like which is fine. Shit, so maybe it's yeah. fine. Um, Alright, what happens next? Uh, well, when she's leaving with the chauffeur, and uh, yeah. he, Tim asks, like, where she's going, and she's like, to the moon, baby. And he's like, you need your chauffeur on the moon? <laughs> and it's like, I understand this is supposed to be like kind of banter almost, but it it just doesn't it doesn't feel like human at all. It feels like an alien trying to, trying to, do to like, decipher how people talk. He's trying to do a film noir type thing, you mm-hmm. know. Like that's it feels like that's what they're going for with it, um, especially with like. But basically, it's a film noir where every single woman is a femme fatale, yeah. <laughs> and like simultaneously like pure evil, but also stupid um which is might say a lot (laughs) now do you remember what she says about her chauffeur no after he says you need your chauffeur on the moon and she's like yes i do i need a big black chauffeur oh yeah Uh, apologies again this whole episode is nothing but an apology to mankind i didn't write that one down for (laughs) yeah and then Tim in voiceover says something like, 
How I hated Patty Lorraine's all-superior fuck-you face. She had been the biggest addiction of my life. Pure love, pure hate. Which, again, that's like, it feels like they're trying to be, like, film noir. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, all right. Sorry, I have to, like, keep, like, I have to read ahead a little bit just so I, like, don't get too confused by my own goddamn uh, No, notes. no, you, that's, that's totally fine. Because, like, we could pull scenes apart, like, for half an hour each and just talk about what the fuck happened in them. We shouldn't. All right, I would like this to be under five hours. <laughs> We're, well, we will. I will try to make this as fast as possible. But I'm also gonna note like when we hit like certain marks in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So after that, we cut back to Tim and Lawrence Tierney, and Lawrence Tierney's like, "I know you're not telling me everything. I like, I, I know you. I know when you're lying." And Tim reveals that there are two bodies in his basement, and Lawrence Tierney's like, "Who are they?" Tim doesn't know. Says he didn't do it, but also says that he's been having blackouts lately. All right, now the nonlinear stuff is about to get wild. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, it feels like Robert Town might have come in and added this element of him doing the shaving cream on the mirror because that's like literally the only way you can tell what the fuck is happening in what order. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> we immediately cut to Tim doing day twenty four, and like he said, it's on the twenty eight. He says, it's been 28 days since Patty Lorraine left me when he first sees Lawrence Tierney. Now, if you happen to miss that one line, you're going to be very confused. Um, but, so, he, he, it's 24, puts on the, he writes in shaving cream on the mirror. Um, and he says, like, this was the worst bender of my life these next five days. Um, and he goes to a bar where he meets... Uh, uh, a former pornographic actress named Jessica Pound and her rich husband, uh, Lonnie Pangborn. <laughs> uh, yeah, this one's all you. <laughs> well, they talk for a bit. He tells, I didn't, I should have written the joke down because I forgot that her laugh was going to end up being important. <laughs> Um, she's, they, somehow they start talking and they're, they're clearly there like waiting for something and she's, and she's kind of annoyed. It feels like Jessica's kind of the one in charge and her husband's kind of subservient. She brings up New England pirates for some reason. <laughs> and she says, in certain houses you can still hear the screams of dead sailors. Um, again with like the weird like ghost references. Again, where I, like, I think they're trying, he's trying to say something about... Provincetown being like hell or purgatory or something. Mm -hmm. um, Tim tells a joke that makes her let out a wild fucking laugh. Um, and then it kind of reveals that like, oh, they might be here. They're kind of swingers and they kind of rope uh, Tim into being their third. To which they cut to a scene where Tim is having sex with Jessica and Lonnie Pangborn is just watching them like openly weeping. <laughs> it was that was a shocking cut. Another one, another shocking cut. It just keeps happening. And like I, it was hard to tell if it was like a cuckolding thing or if something else had happened. Which I think that's deliberate, but still. Yeah, because like, it's like, what what is the dynamic between Tim and this couple? You know, it was yeah. like the, the way they approach him. I, I agree with you. It it is. It seems more like, like a, an open 
form relationship. And then mm-hmm. the, uh, the cut to him weeping, he's like, in the name of decency, would you let me speak? Would someone let me speak? Like, <laughs> we are now approximately um, 20 minutes into the film when this happens. Are we really? Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, dear God. <laughs> yeah, um, <I'm> sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then that kind of does like a, it, it like, I think it fades to black on that guy's weeping face. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly. Either fades or cuts No, no, to black. it does. Because I remember like, this is another establishing shot of the New England area. And I was like, oh, that actually looks kind of nice. It looks like a postcard. And then we're back to the movie. And I was like, oh, yeah. Well, now, because now it's day 25. So you're, there's where the blackout period was. Tim wakes up, he has a tattoo that says Madeline, which is the name of his first wife, but he has no memory of getting it. Um, he, he goes out to his Jeep and finds a bloody shirt in the Jeep and, like, immediately, like, panics, like, wipes off the blood and, like, goes back to his house and throws uh, the shirt in his washing machine. He then gets a call from Mr. Regency, the cop, and tells him you should go check, like, hey, what were you up to last night? He was like, nothing. He's like, you should really go check out your Jeep. It's like, oh, no, someone saw me do something, but he doesn't He doesn't know what. We have to talk about how Mr. Regency, from, like, the moment he walks on screen, like, you know what this guy's deal is. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's, they try to play with, like, some ambiguity of, like, oh, maybe Tim really did do a crime and it's like mr regency like his eyes are always bugged out and he looks like satan and it's like no it's like whatever's gonna happen this guy is gonna frame like it's clear that mr regency is part of some attempt to frame him and the fact that that is so obvious and other things are so like baffling it just makes it all more confusing (laughs) because you're like are we not supposed to know this um so, like, I guess neighbors saw that he had blood in the car, and he goes, like, you should you should uh, really go check out your marijuana patch. Um, which I guess is a thing that he has. <laughs> we do know that Tim used to, like, trade drugs, but, like, the marijuana patch is only just brought up in this moment. So, on orders, Tim goes to uh, his marijuana patch, and lo and behold, what the fuck does he find in it? But a, a woman's severed head um we don't see the face but we see the hair and it's blonde which is the same hair color as jessica um the pornographic actress he had uh sex with in front of the weeping man (laughs) (laughs) Uh, fucking movie less than half an hour in i just want to remind everyone yeah he goes to he goes to mr regency and they start talking about like, oh, you like, where were you last night? It's a kind of like classic bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mr. Regency says, "You know me. I like marijuana. I like them homegrown. Puts feathers on my ass." <laughs> I don't know what that means. No, I, I don't either. <laughs> and then Mr. Regency asks him for probing questions, and Tim's response is, "You just want to tickle my stick." <laughs> And it's like again with the like the, the weird homophobic angle on this. Yeah. And that's just gonna be a recurring thing, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Alright. Now it is now day twenty six. We know because of the shaving cream. <laughs> the owner of the bar comes to Tim and asks him, Hey, uh 
you know that couple you were talking to? Well, their car is still in my parking lot. Have you seen them? Um, and Tim's like, nah, nah, I don't, don't know. I don't know what happened with them. And here's a part of the movie that I was confused by. Tim goes uh, to see the guy who did the seance for some reason. At first, I didn't put together who that's who the guy was. Um, and he's also a junkie. He's on drugs. They get some, like, this is what junkies are like in Norman Mailer's mind. Um, oh, when they go to the and, house, it's fucking hysterical. Yeah, and then they're, like, watching sports, I think, or something, and, like, getting way too into it, but also talking like they don't know what they're watching, because maybe they couldn't get the footage approved yet. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, you just see them uh, from, like, behind a door. Yeah, and there we find the guy who uh, who uh, did the, uh, the tattoo, um, and he's like, you came in, man, you were all crying, you were saying, Madeline, I wronged you, boo-hoo-hoo. Oh, but really quick, um, just backtrack a second. So, did Tim fuck that woman in the parking lot of the bar? I think that's what that shot was implying. Okay. This, um, uh, but... You know, I, I guess a... that... You, you, you could do that. <laughs> you shouldn't. I mean, it's... It's supposed to be, like, the middle of the night in a small town. Maybe that's something it's easier to get away yeah. with. Um, also, the seance guy says uh, that, like, he's like, what would you see in the seance? Which feels like something maybe would have been discussed on the night of the seance. Mm-hmm. And he says that he saw Patty Lorraine dead with her head cut off. I remember Patty Lorraine also had blonde hair. Mm-hmm. So it's like two blondes thing again. It's like they're trying to do noir shit. Like, um, Mr. Regency. Uh, I can't remember if Mr. Regency calls him or what, or if just like picks him up. He picks him up at one point, but Mr. Regency reveals that they found Pangborn. He was in the trunk of his car in the parking lot, and he had shot himself. At least that's what the evidence seems to imply. They also found on him a letter written to Wardley Meeks III, <laughs> who I will say his full name every time we bring him up. It's an incredible name. Um, and the letter kind of reveals that uh, Wardley Meeks III and Pangborn were like secret gay lovers. Um, and then this is what Mr. Regency reveals uh, that he married Tim's former wife, Madeline, at some point. Um, this is that's there's a shot there's an incredible acting moment where he lifts up a wallet like with the picture that's supposed to be his wife and two kids and he just goes us <laughs> and it's like whoa <laughs> um, and Tim kind of reacts like funny to like the knowledge that like they have two kids together um, okay so all of that <laughs> was the first 30 minutes of the movie <laughs> And then we flash back even further. Yes. <laughs> so no more, no more shaving cream on the walls. <laughs> we we flash back to when Tim and Madeline first met, um, and they they lived in New York eight years ago. Um, they seemed to hit it off one night, and then we cut to like, immediately cut to like kind of a rut in their marriage. 
Um, and Tim like wants to be a writer. He's he's not really writing anything. Um, this is all right. This is really baffling. <laughs> so Tim's like, I read an article in Screw Magazine <laughs> about uh, a Christian couple that want a couple swap for like an evening. <laughs> Which, a if I was like. You know what I should float to my wife? <laughs> the idea that we should go couple swapping. <laughs> I would maybe have more tact than being like, hey, I was reading the pornographic magazine Screw Magazine. <laughs> and I saw this, and I think this would be a great idea. And then two, um, maybe not the first thing I would turn to if I was trying to deal with a rut in our marriage. <laughs> um... And we see the picture, and the picture is of a preacher named Big Stoop, played by Penn Gillette. <laughs> Your boy. Penn Teller. <laughs> My boy Penn Gillette. Um, and his wife, Patty Lorraine. So Patty Lorraine used to be married to Big Stoop, <laughs> which is the only name he's ever given. <laughs> they all call him Big Stoop. Um, and we just immediately cut to uh, Tim having sex with Patty Lorraine and you can hear Big Stoop and Madeline having sex in the other room. <laughs> yeah, I need to talk about when they cut to them in bed though. Because they're oh. both under under this big pink sheet mm-hmm. and uh, Patty Lorraine pops her head up like, oh, that was amazing or whatever. And then Tim <laughs> pops his head up and it looks like they were like 69ing. But yeah. I... I don't think they were trying to show that. I think it's just like <laughs> an accident. <laughs> and it's like, why, would, know, you, that honestly, why would you do that? <laughs> like That does feel like something Nora Mailer might try to do. I mean, maybe, but then it's also like, I don't know. It, it also doesn't look like anyone's actually having sex, <laughs> obviously, which mm. is like fine. Plenty of movies don't have good sex scenes. Um, mm. But it's just, it's so weird already, this movie. That it keeps tossing weird wrenches into the woodwork like that, and then you stick with them because you're like, "Why was that done that way?" Like, yeah, th- the bed looks moderately like accessible, but there's this one big sheep with two people under it who come out of it in the most awkward positions possible, and it, it's, it's killing like, me. <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, and it's literally like we cut from, we cut from like, "Hey, I'm just gonna toss out this idea that we should go couple swapping," to them in bed, and then we don't know like. For all we know, Tim went down there and just, like, had sex with Patty Lorraine. Like, we don't... There's no, like, scene where maybe they meet or something. I don't know. It, like, it's so jarring. And then and then just on top of that to be like, are they 69? Like, it's just... It, it keeps getting more and more uh, baffling. Um, and remember, they're a Christian couple... So we immediately cut to the next day in church where, like, uh, Tim and Madeline have been, like, dragged along to the church. Oh, did we mention who uh, Madeline is played by? Uh, oh, that's the Isabella Rossellini character. Isabella Rossellini. Yeah. <laughs> who uh, does the best she can with the material. <laughs> An iconic European actress. Fantastic. Uh, also appeared on a couple seasons of Alias. <laughs> For, for the, the alias stands out there that listen to the show for me. Um, yeah, she does what she can. And uh, um, she's better in literally everything else she's ever been in. 
Oh, I'm looking at my notes real yeah. quick. <laughs> Sorry. All right, so next day at church, Big Stoop is giving like a speech. And he said, I had a vision of the end times. It should be mentioned that uh, Pendulette does not have a southern accent. <laughs> You're just doing that. He's, he, this No, in the movie he does. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it does not sound authentic. <laughs> and neither does Patty Lorraine's, frankly. It's all over the place. Mm. Pendulette is from New England. <laughs> so it's it's a little weird. Yeah, so where does he have the southern accent? Oh, I guess they're supposed to be from the south, though. That's why. I Yeah. Well, see, yeah, they went down south, which is another thing. We immediately go from New York to down south. Like, it's it's all over the place. You don't just drive down south on a whim. Yeah, also, I'm going to be completely you know, honest. The... I did not get that at all from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the, I'm um, discovering this right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to discover yeah. it. I thought it was all still in, in like, the northeast. Oh, wow. Um, what a gift this film is. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> yes. But he said, I had a vision of the end times. I saw two women grinding corn. <laughs> Which is a passage from the Bible. Um, I believe grinding corn shows up a few times in the Bible. and it's People consider it like a metaphor uh, for like sex. But other people say it's like, this. that's what women's work is. Quote, unquote, grinding corn. Which, again, then it's like, there's like a double thing to it where it's like, oh, grinding corn is women's work, and it's women's work to kind of service men, you know? It's kind of one of those like gross passages from the Bible. Um, and I believe the passages, uh, I, this is the one I wrote down anyway. Um, it's from Luke 17, 34. Um, I tell you in the night, there shall be two men in one bed. One shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding corn. The one shall be taken, the other left. And it's kind of a passage about the rapture and the end times, at least by some interpretations. And it, it, it's kind of seen as, like, the trivial matters of earth don't matter. It's who believes in... The people who believe, take Jesus into their heart are the ones that will be saved. And it's this weird way that, like, Pendulette is, like, up on stage, like, giving the speech, and he's kind of, like chastising the couple he just had sex with <laughs> which is in, is so strange um <laughs> I just I was looking at my note for an upcoming scene I, it's the funniest fucking part of the movie but we'll, we'll get okay. there in just a second <laughs> sorry but it's I honestly like again like there's a lot of like religious shit thrown around in this. I have no idea how it all co- is supposed to come together. I don't know. If, if like, we're going back to like the purgatory thing, then maybe there's mm-hmm. something there. But this is like a Mr. Fantastic level stretch to try to make sense of a film that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Mhm. Uh so then uh well then they they finish the service by singing uh Just As I Am, which I'm assuming is in there because <laughs> It was a very, uh, a very popular altar song for Billy Graham in the '80s. Um, an altar song is supposed to be about like a new spiritual commitment to Jesus. I just feel like like is Norm Miller trying to say something about like televangelism in the '80s? Maybe, but then this is the only section of the film where that's kind of important, right? Yeah. Um, Im- important in quotation marks. Yes. <laughs> uh, Okay, so they're they're leaving, 
the church and, and Patty Lorraine's like, I'm gonna leave the big guy. I wanna go be a stewardess and and <laughs> well, yeah, I'll marry like, you. She says, I have a whole like she has a vision, she has a whole plan. Um she like goes up to Tim and is like, What do you wanna be? He's like, I wanna be a writer. She's like, I'm gonna ditch Big Stoop. I'm gonna become an airline stewardess, find and marry a rich man, divorce him, come back and find you, and we'll be able to support you in your writing career. <laughs> Tim Madden has to be the horniest character in all of cinematic history. Also, I'm only now just putting this together, but, like, uh, so his name's Tim Madden. Her name is Madeline. Is there any connection there? I don't think so. Is there, is he trying to say something about the fluidity of gender? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, I don't, I don't. (laughs) I don't, I'm just. I just saw Kenneth Branagh's Dead Again, so. Hmm. You know that uh, if we're talking like older films that might actually tackle that subject, everyone go watch Kenneth Branagh's Dead Again, which is fantastic. Um, it's just again, this is a movie where characters in a Mister Regency and Wardley Meeks the Third, like all these names, like have meaning. Mm-hmm. Like, it just feels a little pointed, and I but I can't tell as to what. Like everything is pointed, every line, every scene. It feels like it's like this is important, but like you can never fucking pick it apart. And figure out as to what. You know what it kind of reminds me of? It's when, like, like a writer or someone will try to come up with, like, a version of their real-life story. And they'll start explaining, like, well, it has to be in there because it happened in real life. And it's like, no, no, it it doesn't. Like, if you're going to do that, you need to make a documentary. You don't write fiction. Mm -hmm. You know? Like, just because it happened in real life doesn't mean it's going to make compelling drama to watch. Like, I'm sorry. Our, our lives just are not that interesting. That's why we have movies. <laughs> um, all right, what the fuck was I going to say? Okay, so Patty Lorraine. Oh, yeah, Tim Madden's the horniest person on the planet because if you buy into what Patty Lorraine just told him, mm-hmm. like, I don't even know how to explain, like, what's wrong with your penis are at we... that point. Now, is this a point where we should... Are we supposed to be going, like, maybe Tim's an unreliable narrator? <laughs> He is a former cocaine addict that has blackouts. <laughs> like, uh, maybe. But the thought never even crossed my mind because I was assaulted by everything else that happened in the film, though. And, and I'm telling you right now, uh, that thought just came across my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have it while I was watching the film. Uh, so, but, okay, can, can we get to the next scene? Because this is the good stuff. Uh, yeah, you want to talk about this Yeah, scene? okay, so then uh, Madeline starts getting to a fight with Tim... Uh, on the drive back home and she's like ah oh, you, you guys gonna like run away together and she's like she's totally calling it as it is like she's he's falling for for patty lorraine and they're gonna end up together and she starts like getting slap happy with him in the car and they get into a, a car accident and for a second i thought like oh my god is there gonna be like a coma subplot in this now and no there's <laughs> not but um madeline is, is something in the even worse happens <laughs> yes uh, and so they're still arguing as she's kind of coming back to 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 wakeness and she's like do you have any coke and tim's like should you be doing that in here which is my reaction to the movie it's the first human reaction i, I felt from another person on screen and um and she doesn't even really address that she's just like oh why do you, why do you always like get away with it and he's like I'll never get caught. Immediately <laughs> cut to him in a prison. Cell. In a prison. <laughs> it's like a comedy shot. It was so um, funny. But you missed the. 
you missed uh, two things. I probably did. Um, when they crash, <laughs> she starts slapping him and she's screaming like, because I'm crazy, because this country's crazy. <laughs> and that's what caused him to wreck the car. But what did the accident do? Oh, it killed their baby or whatever, right? No, it destroyed her There world. you go, that one. And so she can't have children. So that's why it's weird when Mr. Regency showed the picture where he had like the, their two children in it. Um, if you even remember. No. <laughs> with everything it's, that's happened. This is a lot of movie. <laughs> um, Again, we're going to so miss yeah, some the, things. Like, yeah, like immediately go. You're right. Just, it's immediate. It's 100% immediate, too. <laughs> um, to be like, I never get caught when he's in prison. What are um, you in for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cocaine. Like, which we were told that at some point we were told he was in prison for three years. So when we see him outside of prison, um, I guess we're supposed to immediately put together that it's been three years. <laughs> and he's now sweeping up at a bar. Oh, he, I think he does have a line where like he's sweeping up and then... Like, the bar's kind of closing, and he gets a drink, and he's like, this is the first drink I've had in three years. <laughs> Which is, like, I guess that's a way to impart the information, but it's also implying that Tim was like, he's been, he's, he, he, he drinks, we know that about him. He's been thinking about drinking the whole time he was in prison, but as soon as he got out, the first thing he thought to do was to get a job. <laughs> then decided to work on that job for at least one full evening. <laughs> And then have his first drink out of prison. Also, even at a bar, maybe don't drink on the job. Like, yeah. I guess in, in, like, the reality of this film, that makes about as much sense as anything else. But all I have to latch onto for my sanity is to relate to stuff in real life when I watch this now. And then the bartender says something to him, which I can't tell if it's him trying to call him out for drinking on the job, or if it means nothing. <laughs> Because this is the exact delivery. So he, he says that where he has a drink. He's like, this is the first drink I've had in three years. The bartender looks at him and goes, and he leans in on the last line. He goes, you want a quarter for the jukebox? And then they just walk away. Yeah, like, what? What, what, what is that? <laughs> it's like no one, deliver, no one delivers lines like a person ever would. <laughs> And none of it is consistent enough to be like, oh, this is, like, deliberately arch. Like, everyone feels like they're in their own insane movie. <laughs> uh, but who should be at the bar that night um, but fucking Patty Lorraine? <laughs> and she's all, like, she's all dressed up in, like, nice clothing. And he's like, so I guess you married your rich man. And she's like, yep. When I tell you who, <laughs> who, when I tell you who, you're gonna puddle <laughs> in your pants. And she reveals she married uh, Wardley Meeks the <laughs> Third, who I think this is the moment where it is revealed that he's a former schoolmate of Tim's. But it was such a like passing line, I didn't even pick up on it. Like when it's revealed later, I kind of went back and like went looking for it, but. I think this is the moment where she says that Wardley Meeks III is like a former college classmate of Tim's. Yeah, yeah. And I believe she even says Wardley was a classmate of yours and then goes on to say his full name like after. Like, it's a really weird way of like explaining a very simple relationship. 
Yeah. But surprisingly, that is the one thing I did catch on my on my watch. <laughs> For some um, reason, that was the one I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then we immediately cut to Patty Lorraine is divorcing Wardley. <laughs> it, it just as as she said in her in her plan, and we reveal that like Tim at some point was like hired. Like, there's actually like if this was a better movie, I would kind of like these quick cuts. Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of like this cut to when they're in like uh, they're meeting with a lawyer for the divorce, and like there's a lot of information part here about like, well, Tim, you're you're the driver, like what. What was that like? And so, like, we get all this information. Like, okay, this is when Tim, in between sweeping up at this bar, became the driver, started an affair with Patty Lorraine. Patty Lorraine leaves Wardley. Like, th- th- we see all those mechanisms that were put into place. Like, that's there's kind of something there <laughs> in terms of like efficient writing. <laughs> I will say for this nearly two-hour movie, for about thirty seconds, it's kind of like Chinatown. <laughs> um. Uh, Patty Lorraine falsely accuses Wardley of being physically abusive and said, like, he would hit me if I didn't do drugs with him. Um, and then I think Tim is supposed to kind of be the one being like, yeah, I supplied the drugs, so I know what she's saying is accurate. Um, and, like, they're, they're very, like, kind of trying to train her on, like, how to give the death position and stuff like that. It's, it gets, like, kind of meta for a second. Like, like, you have to act like you've been abused, <laughs> which is, just, anytime that's brought up in a movie where, like, a woman is lying about being abused, you kind of go, like, hmm, <laughs> I'm gonna pay attention to what this guy has to say about that issue in actual life yeah. from now on. Well, why? What did Norman Mailer do? Hey. <laughs> I only found um, out this episode, I'm just, I'm just kicking rocks. Yeah. Also, he's dead, it's fine. Uh, yeah, he's dead. Everything's fine. Norm awesome. <laughs> Mailer's dead. <laughs> Thank fucking yeah. God. Um, um, they're trying to rope Tim into like making shit up too. Like they want him to go further, and the lawyer's like, "What you're saying isn't convincing." Like what you're saying is like, "Are you ready to take a beating for Patty Lorraine?" He's like, "Oh, maybe Tim's really the one being abused here." <laughs> Yeah, here's where the movie kind of slows down for me a little bit. A little, but a lot of stuff happens. No, yeah, that's like it, maybe it's too much. It was like information overload, which is saying something yeah. for this fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the, I think it slows down like immediately once it hits the uh, the day twenty seven moment, which is about to happen, mm-hmm. where we're suddenly back out of this flashback into the other flashback. Um, after the trial, like Wardley Meeks comes up to Tim and like doesn't seem like that angry about everything which is strange and this is our first time i think meeting wardley meeks in person yeah we've never seen him in the film and he's he's got a weird voice i don't even know how to describe it's it it's kind of like um, kevin spacey from house of cards a little bit yeah yeah um it's not an endorsement obviously but the the the, the vocal cadence is very similar but I think what he, he tries to say something here where he's like he's confident that once Patty Lorraine runs out of divorce money, um, she'll be more difficult to control, and then she's just going to come back to me. And he says something like, Patty Lorraine and I, together again, will be able to give the wildest, craziest parties this republic here has ever seen. <laughs> it's like, is this fucking Foghorn Leghorn? What the fuck is yeah. going on? <laughs> <laughs> 
And then immediately after that is then now it's day 27 since Patty Lorraine has left. Um, Tim finally gets the courage to call Madeline like they haven't spoken in all these years. Um, Wait, does he call her or does he go straight there? He calls her first. Okay. Because on the phone is when she reveals right, 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 right. That, uh, that the children in the picture aren't actually hers. They're Mr. Regency's brother's kids. Um, and he's like, why would he lie? And she says, because he's a liar. <laughs> and it's like, again, it's one of those moments where it's like, we've all clocked. Like, the moment you see Mr. Regency, you know what the fuck is up with him. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, but like, the movie is kind of revealing it like, it's like it's like in Fargo when she meets with uh, uh, Mike Yadakita, remember? And like he goes on that whole speech about how his wife died, and then when he she finds out later that he was actually lying, like that's what gives her the inspiration to go back and question William H Macy again. Like I think the movie thinks it's kind of dropping this here, being like, why would he lie about the children? <laughs> and it's like no, like we we this this makes perfect sense. <laughs> Um, as Tim is exploring uh, Madeline's new living arrangements with uh, Mr. Regency. Oh, this, this is the, <laughs> uh, this for me was the funniest fucking moment of the movie. Do, do you want to say it? Um, I, I'll say okay. it. I, I got it. Because like, all right, so like he goes over to her house, um, <laughs> and he's kind of like just looking around. And there's, like, all these, like, pictures on the wall of Mr. Regency, like, in the military. <laughs> and, like, from the get-go, um, it's goofy. There's needlepoint on the wall <laughs> that says, Revenge is a dish which people of taste eat cold. <laughs> it's just like, wow. And then... <laughs> I'm, I'm no, sorry. No, go so ahead. Fucking, this is so fucking ridiculous. Um... <laughs> we see the mother. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the very clear outline of a machete <laughs> that is no longer on the wall. <laughs> we see the outline of where a machete, <laughs> Mr. Regency's Vietnam machete, <laughs> once hung. And, like, it's like a cartoon shot. Like, it's like that episode of SpongeBob when they took the pictures off the wall. <laughs> it's so obvious and then if that wasn't enough like underneath it is a picture from vietnam of mr regency it looks like he's mid machete swing and he's like got like a crazed look in his eye like "Ah." he's holding like a big slab of meat or something isn't he I thought he was holding the machete and was like trying to. It looked like he was coming at the cameraman. He might have been holding <laughs> me. Like I was, I was a little too focused. He on definitely the just killed something eyes. in the picture or was about to. Yeah, and it's like, boy, I wonder who cut that woman's head <laughs> off. Like, <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> I mean, I swear, like, I had to pause the movie I was laughing at. Like, I had totally forgotten that happened, and I'm just dying. <laughs> it is the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen. And again, you're like, this is, like, is this supposed to be a mystery at this point? <laughs> like, um, and then finally Madeline shows up. And they start talking. Um... 
do you want to do you want to say what she says? You you got this one. I want to give the reaction later. Okay. Um, so she talks up Mr. Regency's cruelty, but then also it's like Tim, you kind of sucked as a husband, blah blah. blah. So it's like why? Well, why are you with Mr. Regency? Um, he doesn't say Mr. Regency, but this is why I call him Mr. Regency, because Madeline says. Mr. Regency and I make out five times a night. That's why I call him Mr. Five. What is that? Oh, boy. <laughs> Man, I wish I could assert my masculinity by making out with a woman five times a night. <laughs> like, that's, that's how you know a relationship is working. <laughs> when you make out five times a night. <laughs> And she gives him a note. Uh, oh, that's coming in a minute. She calls him Mr. Six at the end of it, that, this conversation, for some reason. Um, and then, like, tells him to get out, like, take the letter, get out of the house. And she's like, but don't open it until you get home. But he doesn't go home. He goes to the beach. Mm-hmm. Now, this is when I, I realized I recognize something from this movie. If you were on the early days of the internet, let's say, like, the late 2000s especially... Then you're familiar with the, oh, God, oh, man, oh, God, oh, man, with the cameras. I believe the clip is actually posted as, like, worst line delivery in film history. Yeah, which it might be, actually. Like, some of those things are, like, you know, like, clickbaity for the, the YouTube clicks or whatever. No, this one, that might be it. That might be the one. Um, so Tim opens up the letter, and in the letter it says, my husband is having an affair with your wife. I don't think we should talk about it. <laughs> Unless you're prepared to kill them. And then that's when he spit... music stay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just... Dun, dun. I'm just... That one, I'm going to put the clip here. I'm just going to put the clip here again. I'm probably opening up the episode with that. I'm putting it back here. Yeah. No, no, you have... Not that you have to open it with the trailer for this movie. Which, did you... Have you seen the trailer for this movie? Absolutely not, but I will now. Okay, all right. I, sorry, I'm bringing it No, no, it's now, fine, yeah. Like... Okay. Because I, I need to know Diego's reaction. So the the trailer for Tough Guys Don't Dance is Norman Mailer talking directly to the camera. And he's like, a screening just ended of my new motion picture, Tough Guys Don't Dance. And I have some of the comment cards here from the audience. And it's like, first one, he's like, brilliant, innovative. And then he like throws it away. And the next one, he's like, the worst film I've ever seen. <laughs> And so it's him, like, alternating between people saying, like, this is, like, an interesting movie, and others going, like, this is some of the worst shit I've ever seen. And then it shows some clips from the movie, and then it ends with Nora Mailer reading, like, the last card, and the last comment says, it goes, the devil made this picture. And then Nora Mailer winks at the camera. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty, Um, uh... Kind of an amazing... Did he think he was like Alfred Hitchcock or something? I just think he just thought he was brilliant at everything he did. Like it's it's white guy author syndrome. Okay, you know? okay. Like, yeah. I mean, he won a Pulitzer. Like, if I won a Pulitzer, I would think like I have to be doing something, yeah. right? <laughs> like, at the very least. Okay. Wow. That's an, yeah. Okay. I'm I'm definitely putting that at the beginning then. Um. All right. Now there's a follow up scene after. Uh... Oh wait. This is officially the halfway point of the movie. <laughs> All right, let's start speedrunning it a little bit, but I have to bring up this next scene. 
Um, We're not going to be able to speed run this. <laughs> well, well, Tim goes to, to a bar, and some greaser dude shows up at the bar next to him. Puts his beer down the table, and he's like, hey, your day is near. And then some woman goes up, starts talking to Tim, and then that dude leaves. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but when that greaser dude leaves, he picks up a bottle that was already there, and not the beer that he came with. <laughs> it's so perfect. I laughed so that, that, fucking hard. <laughs> that sums up the whole movie. Yes. <laughs> um, the the woman the woman talks to him in between that, and uh, I don't know who this woman is, <laughs> but she I think she's supposed to be the junkie lady from the scene earlier, um, who's also has like one line in that scene and then disappears. But it could just be a completely original movie. She says an an insane line where she says. You and I are special Looney Tunes <laughs> because we never fucked each other. <laughs> and then that's it. That 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 line leads to nothing. Yeah, that character is not in the rest of the film. With any, it has nothing to do with the rest of the film. <laughs> um, Tim gets a call at the bar um, from Spider. <laughs> who this is the first time we're given Spider's name. He's one of the guys from the uh, seance, right? Yeah, yeah, he's the the guy who's screaming at the table. Yeah, so uh, it's Spider, and again, like I couldn't keep track of some of these characters. Like I was going out of my mind. Oh yeah, no, that's and why I, I have like the Wikipedia said, I, open for this one. Yeah, and uh, Tim gets a call from Spider, and he says you're being set up for murder. And then he looks out the window, and he sees Spider is calling from a car, and he's in a car with Wardley Meeks the Third, which then drives off. <laughs> And Tim, like, runs out there, and immediately behind them, Mr. Regency shows up and picks up Tim. Um, and, like, Mr. Regency starts grilling him about uh, about Jessica and reveals that, like, if uh, Pangborn shot himself, someone had to have, like, driven the car afterwards because they think the car was, like, seen somewhere else or something. I don't fucking know. Um, and then Mr. Regency's like, if Jessica's body turns up, like, you might be in trouble. And we know that Tim has her has the head in the marijuana hole. <laughs> I think all this is happening on day twenty seven, if I remember correctly. Like this is all like the one. This is all the day before Lawrence Tierney showed yeah. up. And you know what? To be um, fair, if all this happened the day before Lawrence Tierney showed up at my house too, I would look exactly like Tim walking down those stairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to. Um, I have to be honest. This is the most positive thing I'm gonna say in this movie. Uh, when Mr. Regency picks up Tim and they're in the car and there's a split diopter. It's a pretty good split diopter. Yeah, yeah, it looks yeah. fine. Someone on set knew what they yep. were doing. <laughs> Congratulations to that person. Um, Mr. Regency brings Tim back to the police station for a drink. Um, he's like, uh, seven nights ago we saw, we have deep information that Patty Lorraine was in Santa Barbara with Wardley Meeks III. They had dinner with uh, Jessica and Lonnie Pangborn. <laughs> um, they were planning a $2 million cocaine deal of some kind. I don't remember exactly how he... Oh, he says, like, he's got, like... He's got an informant, but we don't know who the informant is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although, I guess we're supposed to know at this point, because we know that Mr. Regency and Patty Lorraine are sleeping, at least according to uh, uh, Madeline. Um, and... So like, and we know that Tim used to deal cocaine. So I think the implication is like, Mr. Regency either thinks Tim 
is is supplying the, the two million dollars worth of cocaine or mr regency is trying to frame tim for the cocaine situation and they tell some l- dumb long story about a serial killer who lived with his mother <laughs> <laughs> um and uh something violent happens at the end of that story and uh mr regency says something like I'm a law enforcement... I like this story because I'm a law enforcement officer and it turns me on. And then Tim just leaves. (laughs) Most people would in that situation. (laughs) To be fair. Yeah. Now, I... So, we immediately... uh, We cut to Tim. He's going to uh, his marijuana hole to find out whose head it is. Because, like, he mentions in voiceover, like... I looked at the head. I saw it was blonde hair, but, like, I didn't want to look... I didn't want to see who it was. Like, I was too scared to actually confirm that it was Jessica. So he's going back now because he's either going to... He wants to confirm it, but also take the head. Um, now, remember, he got picked up from the bar by Mr. Regency. So I don't know how he got his car to his car and then to the marijuana hole so quickly. But, yeah. <laughs> um, whatever. But also, he suddenly has a dog now. Yeah, that threw me the fuck off. Like... It's like, he's, this dog, there's, like, there hasn't even been a hint of this dog <laughs> in this movie. Like, there's not even, like, oh, he's got, like, a collar on the wall or something. Like, now, let's no. say you were to watch this uh, on YouTube on, on a DVD rip of some kind or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, if you, you stumble upon stuff like that, it's like, oh, well, I guess they, they splice this movie up or, or something. I don't know, fuck, right? Yeah, like we met, we clearly they missed something in when they were uploading. Yeah, or like they'll sometimes YouTube will upload or people upload clips to YouTube and they'll like chop them up to avoid like getting flagged or something like that. So I was like, did that happen? And no, no, that's just the way the movie works. Yeah, it's how it's how the fucking movie is. Yeah. <laughs> um, he goes to his marijuana hole, and not only does he find the the one head, he finds another head. <laughs> Two blondes, and like we we immediately kind of figure like oh it's it's Jessica and Patty Lorraine, like because they're the only two blondes in this fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> so somehow uh, they've both been killed at separate times, and their heads put in the marijuana hole. Um, on the way out, he runs into uh, Wardley Meeks the Third's goons, and they attack him and they kill his dog. And Tim is so angry by his dog getting killed that he smashes up Wardley Meeks the Third's car, <laughs> and then he takes the heads and goes home. And then day twenty-eight, um, it's I actually like that when we cut when we finally get to uh, day twenty-eight and the story kind of wraps back in on itself. I like that it's literally just the same scene again. Like they didn't try to like change it up in some way. They didn't do the same scene from another angle. It's literally the exact same scene of him coming down the stairs in the morning. <laughs> I don't know why. I kind of liked that. Like, I thought that was interesting. Um, I oh, guess. But first, before, <laughs> I don't know. Before that happens, so this even this happens before, uh, he, like, wakes up to, like, a storm, but then goes back to sleep, and then when he wakes up, the storm has cleared up. I don't know why that was in this. I don't know either. And this is, this is where I'm going to say what you were saying earlier, like, with a better movie that that could, like, have meaning applied to it, you know? Mm-hmm. But it... Yeah, maybe like <laughs> a passing storm, like we're in the eye of the storm, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But but nothing ever happens, like. And it's one thing you could also be like, oh, maybe this is like because we eventually cut to like 
bodies start getting hidden, like get tossed out to sea. So like the storm could be like, oh no, the bodies are going to wash up. But that doesn't happen until after the storm. <laughs> so I I have no I have no fucking clue. Truly have no fucking clue. Um, yeah. So he goes down. It's Lawrence Tierney. He has finished telling his tale of woe. Uh, Tier- Tierney goes to investigate the heads. <laughs> um, the first heads is Jessica's. He says it was cut off with a machete, but was shot beforehand. Um, the second uh, was Patty Lorraine, um, but she was dead before the head was cut off, but probably shot in the heart because like there's no bolt hole in the head. But a different weapon was used on Patty Lorraine. Uh, and then Tierney like chastises Tim for being like too sensitive. He's like, "You're too sensitive about this severed head." <laughs> like, it's like, dude. <laughs> and then Tierney goes, and there's like a long sequence of Tierney going out to throw the heads into the ocean, which doesn't lead to anything really. No, we just see him do it. <laughs> yeah, like he doesn't get caught. Like no one sees him doing it. It's just a long scene. Um. So, Tim goes to the airport. <laughs> um, I guess that's where you you go if you're, you want answers, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure why he did that, and I thought I might have missed something, but I guess not? I don't know, maybe Lawrence Tierney told him to do it. Lawrence Tierney seems to be the only one who knows what to do. <laughs> which is why he's the author surrogate. Um, and the woman uh, at the counter, and I guess because it's a small town, it makes sense that she would have this information, but she's like... Oh, uh, no, Jessica left for San Francisco by herself. She was escorted here by Mr. Regency. And uh, he gets a call from Madeline. She says Mr. Regency is acting crazy. Um, Tim finds Mr. Regency's cop car, like, abandoned by the side of the road as he's driving over to see her. And he finds a machete in the trunk, as if we needed to underline this machete business more. (laughs) Like... Um, and here's actually kind of a fun shot, um, while Tim is investigating the machete in the trunk, uh, we get, like, an aerial shot of Wardley Meeks, uh, like, running over, like, hunched over, like, sneaking into the passenger side of Tim's car. I kind of like that shot. I like the idea of it, but it is so, (laughs) like, awkwardly stitched together that it's like, okay, he should have fucking seen him. Like, all you had to do is move the camera to, like, the right a little bit and have it kind of cover the perspective of, of Wardley uh, sneaking into the car. But we... Mm. It's really weird. It feels like it's missing, like, one or two pieces, which I guess, since the rest of the movie feels like it's missing 100,000 pieces, that's that's an improvement. Yeah. But, um... I don't know. I like the idea yeah. of it. It's just, like... It's it's all so goofy. <laughs> and it's probably the one moment Ryan O'Neill actually kind of does, like, gives a good performance. Like, when he runs back to his car, you kind of get the... You, you get to see... Because they don't change that arrow of you, but you can see him reacting to finding Wardley Meeks in his car and then getting in because Wardley Meeks has a gun. Mm-hmm. And, like, without, like... It's 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 a nice, simple shot. And it's, like, kind of nuts when, like, things get, like, really simple and kind of like, wow, that was, like, really concise. Yeah. I mean, hey, maybe Norman Mailer just needed to make uncomplicated films. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not going to give that son of a bitch any credit. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you, you never know. Maybe it was someone else's suggestion to shoot this. Like, Oh, this, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Who's cinematographer? Yeah. Mike Moyer and John Bailey. Yeah, two cinematographers. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. That's a good sign. Oh, uh, <laughs> John Bailey worked with like Lawrence Kasdan, Paul Schrader, Michael Apted. So, yeah. cool stuff. Hey, hey, cool. Um, 
But, uh... Alright, what the fuck happens then? Okay. Uh, oh, they go to the beach. <laughs> well, yeah, but Worley Meeks reveals that he has killed his own henchmen. And, uh... They go to the beach, and Worley Meeks makes a comment about it. This is where the pilgrims actually landed first, before going to Plymouth Rock. Feels like... His, he has, like, these ideas of America that he's We live in a this. society. <laughs> well, because, like, <laughs> like, earlier when uh, Isabella Ross Laney is like, this crazy is making me cunt, or this, this country is making me crazy. <laughs> this yeah. crazy is making me country. Um, or whatever. And, like, there's stuffed away in here without, like, any greater purpose other than I got a lot of ideas about the world. <laughs> I, got, yeah. I got ideas about the society. Mm-hmm. I guess if, if there's anything to take away from this, if there's any positive things to say about Norman Mailer, is that he seems like a well-read person. <laughs> but he just doesn't know how to make it congeal into anything coherent in a film. And this is when I wrote in my notes in all caps, Holy shit, there are 30 minutes left. <laughs> um, but at least things kind of do speed up going into this like last stretch. Um I have no idea what's going on, though, with Wardley Meeks the third and Tim at the beach. Like, they're in a weird standoff, and he's making him walk. Like, I, like they're talking. I don't know what any of that means. This is when I basically just kind of gave up. Like, Yeah, I, I assumed uh, that Wardley Meeks was, like, the mastermind behind this, and he's not. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not, but he did play a part. He did play an important he part. He did, he did. Uh, uh, I, I don't fully understand it either. Um, I um, will say, if we're, we're sh- talking about ideas that could work in a better film, like a good one, uh, when Wardley Meeks asks him, like, do you feel... Like, he, he says it in a really complicated way, so I'm just going to streamline it. He says, do you feel mm-hmm. that you would die uh, better if you had your questions answered before you go into, like, that long good night? And then mm-hmm. Tim says yes, and it's like, okay, there's, like, an idea there, you know? Like, how, how do you, like, approach death in in a story like this? Like, what... How do you feel comfortable dying? You know? I don't know. It reminded me of Tenet. Yeah. When uh, Kenneth Branagh's oh, yeah. like, how would you like to die? And mm-hmm. then the protagonist says, old. You know? I was like, there's something to that. Um, what, if, what if Wardley meets the third win? I'm the protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> this movie should be played in reverse. I want to see what... what... Nolan might be actually be able to do something with the weird structure of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Wardley Meeks would be like, oh, don't you see? It's a classic temporal pincer movement. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I understood the ending of this about as much as I understood the ending of Tenet. Like, no, Tenet really, makes sense. Tenet, Tenet's fun. I just, it, I've watched it twice now, and I still just kind of don't know what's happening by the end. Oh, by the end, yeah, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I don't like, know. It's all that last... That last like chunk, and I like I wish I understood it because that's like kind of the thing. I really enjoy that movie, and then like right then I'm like I don't know what's happening, and now I don't know how to feel about <laughs> any of it. And but like, here's the thing: like I'm talking about how like both of these movies are like Tenant and Tough Guys Don't Dance are both confusing <laughs> movies, and I and I also brought up Zack Snyder's films, but like Tenant has stuff in it where it's like I want to put in the effort to try and figure this out, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it would be worth it. And Nolan, in the past for me, has proven that it's worth it to kind of put in the effort sometimes. We're like a mix of, like, his style of storytelling and also sometimes just plain old sloppy storytelling. Um, whereas 
I I do not know how worth it it is to figure out what is going on and tough guys don't dance. Yeah, I mean that that's really the problem. Not even just like the whole Norman Mailer of it on, like but like mm. there's there's really so, nothing here. There's too much here and it becomes nothing. I guess if you if you're looking at two opposite sides of a, of a grading curve um where it's like Nolan on one end like worth figuring out tough guys don't dance not worth figuring it out and then like all of Zack Snyder's films are in the middle <laughs> if that's how you want to picture it in my mind anyway um but hey this is when Warley Meeks the third uh reveals the whole plot <laughs> take it away Diego <laughs> I, I don't even know where to begin explaining it do you want to try no. <laughs> all right only um, because we've been explaining this movie pretty well considering what it's got going on yes and i still and don't again, like feel I said, that i have a better grasp on it this was this was the, this is the product of four hours of my life <laughs> trying to untangle this so um so we've here's what i think happened <laughs> Lonnie Pangborn was going to flee uh, with the two million, and it's two millions of Wardley Meeks the Third's money for the cocaine. Um, and Wardley Meeks, I mean, Lonnie Pangborn's kind of like the first time he has stood up for himself, and Jessica shot him. So Jessica's the one who killed Lonnie Pangborn. She calls Wardley, claiming it was a suicide. Um, when Wardley hangs up, uh, we see that Patty Lorraine was listening in on the other side, and she forces Wardley Meeks the Third to go get her. This is the moment where we kind of go like, "Oh, Patty Lorraine has been orchestrating all of this," um, and like Wardley Meeks the Third isn't uh, doing too hot with this stuff. It, this whole film, he's kind of been like a tough guy. At least he looks like <laughs> one. Like he's been like doing some like tough guy shit for most of the movie at this point. Although he is. Lonnie Pangborn's secret gay lover. Not that gay people can't be tough, but I feel like in the world of this film... It, it's a shock to like the system in this film. Yeah. But now we see Wardley Meeks is kind of... Uh, he lives up to his name. He's very meek. And he's like... Uh, he's, he says a great line. He's like, I am so wrong for this kind of imbroglio. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, he goes... Uh, he goes to pick her up, but it turns out... Patty Lorraine gave Wardley Meeks the third, um, intentionally gave him the wrong directions. Instead, Patty Lorraine called Mr. Regency, and they went to go get Jessica. Um, they take they as a group. They take the car with Pangborn's body to the bar. Um, Jessica kind of gets intimate with Mr. Regency as they're driving. Um, cause I guess all women are like floozies in this universe. Yeah. What? Um, hang on. Cause there's a, there's a line that Patty says, like you'll wipe the floor with horrors or something like that later. I, I guess. I, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's, there's a, lot a lot of talk, of talk like, in this. Yeah. There's a lot of talk of dead sex workers. In this yeah. It's unfortunate. It's, it's, uh, not great. <laughs> there's, there's also a uh, lot of homophobic slurs in the first half at least. Oh yes. I, I have cut down on a lot. <laughs> Of what was yeah, said, yeah, um, and I and I I will state right now the worst line in this movie has yet to be spoken. <laughs> I might have shut it out from my brain just because, like you, the back half of, of this movie is just so much it, it becomes overwhelming. 
And it might be subjective, but I think it's pretty All bad. Right. <laughs> so we'll we'll get to it. Um, so uh, when they when they finally meet up, Jessica hands over the two million, um, but she threatens to turn everyone in if she doesn't get the cocaine, which I don't know what that sort of plan is. <laughs> um, so Patty Lorraine shoots her in the head. Um, and that's when they go and place the head in Tim's marijuana hole. Um, uh, Spider and the other guy <laughs> um, go to Wardley Meeks the Third. They reveal they were roped in by Mr. Regency to get rid of Jessica's body. Um, and, like, they're doing it because there's, like, because Spider's, like, like I, I saw Pale Rain dead with no head. Like, we're trying to avoid the prophecy. There's some talk of that. And uh, that's when they show Jessica's body with no head, which is, like, one of the, it's just off-putting. <laughs> like, um, what did they have her encased in? I forgot what they said. Oh, God, I don't even know. It looks like, like, a... Whatever it is, it's kind of like emulating like a marble statue, you know, mm-hmm. which is like she's been she's been turned into like a literal object at this point, her dead naked corpse, uh, and so Worley Meeks the third then has uh, a great line, a great series of lines, <laughs> where he's talking to these guys and he goes, Lonnie is dead. Jessica is dismembered. Patty Lorraine is off on some sort of toot. And I'm about to go into business with you two unspeakable sleezos. What a performance. Unspeakable sleezos. You know what? In hindsight, he might be my favorite character in the movie. I kind of do like Wardley Meeks the thing. Yeah. <laughs> like he's it's such a wild character. Um and he says, "I know I am out of my mind, but I've never felt more alive." Which kind of maybe harkens back to like the death is a celebration line from beginning. And there's another line later that kind of doubles down on that, um which but I don't know, but like Wardley Meeks he's gone from Meek and now like he's it's kind of implying, like, this is the first time in his whole life, despite being a rich boy, that, like, he's ever felt in control of his life, now that he has this one thing over Patty Lorraine. Um, Orly Meeks confronts Patty Lorraine, and they argue he shoots her. <laughs> um, and then they cut off her head um, with the intent on framing Tim. And I guess they put the head in the marijuana hole not knowing Jessica's head. No, no, because those guys put that head there. Or no, did they? I don't know. No, the uh, the 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 guys the the guys that Meeks hired didn't know yeah. that it it okay. was Regency and Patty Lorraine that did. Now Patty Lorraine's okay. dead. Only Regency does. And All I guess right. Wardley Meeks, because how else would he have mm-hmm. known where to put the head? I I well maybe they just all know about the marijuana hole. You know, everyone's favorite spot in town. <laughs> The yeah. marijuana hole. The secret marijuana hole, which everyone knows about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, all this was like a plan to, of course, frame Tim. Um, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why did they want to frame him in the first place? I mean, I, everyone's kind of got a beef with Tim, you know? Like, mm. everyone's... Uh, and then we're back to them sitting together on the beach. And Worley Meeks has a line where he's like, 
There is so much pleasure in shooting people. <laughs> um, they have another long, boring conversation. I have no idea what the substance of it is. <laughs> but at the end of the talk, Warley Meek shoots himself. Not only did he shoot himself, he asks Tim to put his arm around him. Oh, and yeah, And then he yeah. shoots himself, like, in the heart or whatever? Yeah. It's like... I guess that's a way to kill yourself. I don't know. I'm just so used to, like, seeing in movies, like, you know, the headshot. It mm. seems a little more efficient. Also, the gun, like, it's one of those things where, like, Norm Mailer, for as tough a guy he wants to portray himself as through his work, seems to not know how what guns sound like. <laughs> like, they, it doesn't... We hear the bullet sound, but we don't hear it ever hitting anything. You know, like, it's being fired into sand all the time, and we just hear the bullet. We don't hear the sand, and we definitely don't hear it piercing uh, Warley Meeks III's heart. <laughs> After all this, we end up uh, back at Tim's house. So Tim, Madeline, Mr. Regency now dressed up in his Green Beret uniform, <laughs> and Lawrence Tierney are all at Tim's house. Mr. Regency is, like, out of his mind. I think what's being implied here is that, like, Jessica's death has kind of driven Mr. Regency insane because he actually kind of liked Jessica. And because, like, when he's, like, having his, like, freak out, he's, like, flashing back to her, like, dead body. So it's like, oh, this guy wasn't as tough as we thought he was either. He was upset by a woman's death. <laughs> um, he, he, he says Madeline is the woman he inherited, which is such a gross line. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Regency reveals he's the one who put blood in Tim's Jeep because he wanted to frame him for wasting like half of Madeline's life or something ridiculous like that. Then Tim reveals Patty Lorraine is dead. Mr. Regency like goes like full freak out and has a stroke. <laughs> now I have to I have to say something here. Mr. Regency when he's like this is the film's full on reveal of his monstrous nature. Yeah. He kind of has been acting the, the same way the entire film. Yeah, he's not acting any different. <laughs> yeah. He is the speed the whole movie, and according to that picture, he was—he's been this way since Vietnam. Oh yeah, no, he's like, done war crimes. There's no chance this man hasn't murdered like men, women, and children, civilians. Yeah, it's like—it's amazing this hasn't happened all like yeah, yeah. like it took this long <laughs> for this to happen. Um, all right, the here comes the worst line in the movie, um, and. Uh, Mr. Regency is now in a bed upstairs in Tim's house. He is, uh, he's like half paralyzed from the stroke. Uh, he's all fucked up. And Madeline is by his bedside, and they're kind of arguing. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna kind of imitate what he sounded like. I'm not trying to, like, put a voice on it, but it kind of, I kind of have to. Um, so it's them going back and forth. He goes... I made you come 16 times in a night. <laughs> Which, like, first, like, what? <laughs> like, like, I don't want to put my cards on the table. <laughs> oh, what? Not everyone can do that? Um, I, not only <laughs> that. Um, I have not gotten close to that number, so... Uh, just gonna throw that there. And she goes, not one of them was good. And that's when he goes, and this is, I think, the line of the movie. <laughs> that's because you've got no womb. And it's just like, oh my <laughs> god. 
and we just immediately cut to Lawrence Tierney and Tim like in the hallway, <laughs> just listening to this. <coughs> and uh, Lawrence Tierney's like, "Well, I gotta kill him. I'll do it since you're too much of a pussy." <laughs> like he basically says it like just one more time, <laughs> says it. But then we hear a gunshot, and Madeline has killed Mister Reedency. And we just cut to uh, uh, Tim and Lawrence Tierney just throwing his body into the ocean with the other bodies. Um, to which Tim also says, you know, I'm, I'm taking to this activity more than I thought I would. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, and, but Lawrence Tierney says, uh, this, this might be the cure for cancer. <laughs> yeah, dumping bodies into the ocean. Killing people and get rid of bodies. Which, I mean, look. There might be something there to, like, you know, like, if you go through a traumatic experience or, like, anything like, you know, let's say you woke up one morning not realizing you were going to kill someone with a machete, <laughs> but that shit happens. It can give your body, like, a weird rush that could be mistaken for, like, positive endorphins, right? Like, they say that happens to people, even, like, people that aren't necessarily violent murderers, <laughs> but... It's so weird that it's, like, a recurring thing in this movie. It's almost like trying to be, like, this is the natural state of things. <laughs> Sorry. It's just... Fuck. This movie. Like, and this is one of those movies where if I didn't know more about Norman Mailer, I would be asking myself, like, is this a movie about men who hate women, or is this a movie that hates women? <laughs> like, it's hard... It's hard to tell. Um, also... For some fucking reason, Pomp and Circumstance starts playing. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the song they usually play at, like, graduations. Why? Because he's he's graduating from uh, becoming a a pussy, and now he's a man. I don't know. Yes. That was disgusting Uh, what I just said. I apologize. But, like... I mean, that's what the movie might be saying. I know. I I know. Uh, but now, uh, now Tim and what... Isabella Rossellini can live happily ever after with the money that. Um... Yeah, we cut to them a little bit later, and like they're all like they're together happy, and she's like, "It's this is such a weird scene." Like they pull up to a rich house, and Tim's like, "Hey, where are we going?" And it's like, first of all, clearly this house, idiot. But then second of all, she's like, "Oh, this is our house. I bought it with uh, two million dollars I found in Mister Regency's closet." And it's like everything is very white, and she like goes in. She's like all happy. She has a terrible haircut. Though. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Um, and like Tim slowly shuts the door, and it like holds on this shot for a long time <laughs> of the closed door. And we can. It's actually kind of neat. We can kind of see a silhouette through the door, and then we hear that Jessica's laugh from earlier. <laughs> like ah. Fade to black, tough guys don't dance. <laughs> Anyways, I'm I'm giving this five stars in Letterboxd. <laughs> is the is the ending of this movie implying that Madeline was like the secret true femme fatale the whole time? No, see what I got from it was that he's always gonna be haunted. Because he hates women. I guess. I guess that's what yeah. it is. <laughs> um Sorry, it's um thank you for suggesting this movie, honest to God. Because <laughs> yeah. it is fucking hysterical. Um yeah, I think this should be this should be more popular in like so bad it's good circles, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it's already, like, is... almost there. Just because of the history of yeah. the internet and that one scene, which we all know, even if we didn't know it. You know? Like, it's mm-hmm. part of, like, the cultural zeitgeist now. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe this podcast will put it over the edge. Maybe, yeah, it's gonna be... Yes. Good. You're welcome, world. Here's the thing, if it happens, if it happens at a later date, if it happens next week, if it happens five years from now, it was entirely because of us. We started that ball rolling. Yep. You're welcome. You're welcome, world. Um, that was that was wow. tough. Guys can't dance. Don't dance. Don't, don't dance. dance. They don't dance. It's uh, um, might honest to god be the worst film we've ever talked about. <laughs> yeah, in terms of like what it might be saying about the world, like it's either this or uh, the Lorax. But... We haven't talked about the Lorax though. Well, we've brought it up. Lorax. We Although, haven't done an episode. I gotta be honest. It. Like this, this I came out of this. Like how uh, they discovered throwing bodies into a, a, a river like actually rejuvenated them. Watching this kind of rejuvenated me a little bit <laughs> in a weird like, like holy shit! I did not know like my brain could go in these directions <laughs> while watching the movie. I didn't know I could be like, I could be stretched like this. Um, whereas uh, our previous episode, the Book of Henry, um, just left me filled entirely with hate. Like, yeah, this totally had the opposite effect. It's like this. I like this overtly has uh, has everything I had a problem with in Book of Henry, but worse, but was more engaging for that reason. I, I think it commits more. Like the direction is just off kilter enough. Whereas like Book of Henry, I'm like, this is this feels gross. Yeah. This is also gross, but it's also detached enough from reality that it can be very very engaging to watch. I think at least Norman Mailer understood that he hated women. <laughs> I don't know if that's a positive we can end on. I'm not saying it is, but I think that Colin Trevorrow doesn't think that. Anyone think? like? Uh, anyways, uh, thank Francis Ford Coppola for for producing this yeah. with uh, Golan and Globus. Um, yeah. I wonder how much money he made off of this is going to go to Megalopolis. <laughs> Uh, maybe a couple. No, actually, no. They all lost well, the money movie, on this movie. It cost five it to ten says, million dollars, and its yeah. box office intake was three hundred and forty-three thousand dollars. Roger Ebert gave it two and a half stars. You know what? It's a lot higher than I thought it would be. Yeah, um, uh, I'm seeing some comparisons to like Russ Meyer movies. Oh, ap- no, I can't go there. I I, that, I don't but... either. Um, also, because Faster Pussycat like Kill weird... Kill is like actually like a good movie yeah like Bruce Meyer definitely had like a weird relationship with women but it, like he also clearly did like women you know like yeah I mean I think it's safe to say he was also clearly a horn dog oh yeah and I don't think there's anything wrong with being a horn yeah dog really, especially so. like right now the big discourse is like hey we're like losing sex in movies you know yeah um Russ Meyer <laughs> this one's for you <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting writing out on this film that I'm just discovering now because of this episode. So sincerely, thank you for yeah. recommending this one because I think we're going to talk about significantly better films in the future. I feel yeah. like I already have like a handle on the discussions about them. This one is like a whole other world I get to explore now. Yeah. Um, and it might, I mean, like I said, I'm looking at the letterbox right now and like the second most popular review... Now, mind you, it only has 92 likes, but uh, it's a four-star review of the movie. 
So someone got something out of it. I'm giving it five stars when the, when this episode goes yeah. up. It's it's a five star experience, not a five star movie. Yeah, I think it's gonna be one of those movies where like I hit the like but give it no star rating, like which is what I do with movies that are like bad but like I got something out of. That's probably better to do. Mm-hmm. I I just my brain doesn't work anymore, so I'm not I'm not yeah. gonna do that. Um, I should say uh, before I forget, I forgot to bring it up when we talked about it, but the oh, during the Oh God, Oh Man scene, you can find a video of Norman Mailer talking about that scene um, in the movie. And he basically talks about how uh, everyone wanted him to cut that scene. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, Ryan O'Neill begged me to cut it. Um, the producers told me to cut it. My editor de- like begged me to cut it, and I refused. And he, he's like... And he's like, I realized later, yeah, that was kind of a bad scene. So, like, he at least noticed that. And he's like, so Ryan O'Neill's like, mad at me for leaving it in because he thinks it makes him look bad, which it definitely does. <laughs> um, and he's like, but, he goes, yeah, you know, that was, that scene, it is a disaster. It's the only disaster in the film. <laughs> <laughs> so he stands by the rest oh, of it. Oh, <laughs> okay, well, good for him. Um, uh, you know what, let, let so, me end, unless you have anything else you want to say about the movie. I think I'm good. Okay. I think uh, I think I'm. Then I will read I the excerpt say. from Roger Ebert's two and a half star review. Okay. He said, "What is strange is that tough guys don't dance. Leaves me with such vivid memories of its times and places, its feelings and weathers, and yet leaves me so completely indifferent to its plot. Watching the film, I laughed a good deal. You know what? <laughs> it's the first time we've agreed with him in a while. I think. Yeah, yeah that's that's safe to say." Good, good yeah, on that, you, that, Ebert. That's, hey, uh, Vinegar Syndrome, like, just last year, put this out on Blu-ray. I, instant purchase. I am I am buying it right now. Yeah, I'm, does Vinegar Syndrome do sales? Because, like, I might save it for then. Oh, I, I, I'm seeing their prices now. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for a sale. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not um, making money. You know, that's that's what that's just what home media is going to be like for the future, for the time. I being. know, I know. Um, but, hey, uh, yeah, uh... That was Tough Guys Don't Dance. Yeah. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, go watch the movie. However you can. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Where can the people find you? I don't know if I feel comfortable telling people to go see it. But, um, <laughs> I mean, if... if if Yeah. Um, uh, watch it if you're... If you're man enough. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> tough guys don't not watch Tough Guys Don't Dance. I don't fucking know. <laughs> like, Real men watch Tough Guys Don't Dance. What else did... Has Robert Town just been cashing in on Chinatown for, like, his whole life? Probably, yeah. What else has he done? Like, well, I mean, like, he wrote, like, The Last Detail and, like, Shampoo and shit. Oh, he wrote the first but, like, two Mission Impossibles. Yeah, but, like, every time you read about the other stuff he writes, there's always stories about, like, how it was rewritten, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that, like, he turned in scripts no one could really make sense of, and then they were rewritten. And, like, Mission Impossible famously, like, had an ending that, like, no one understood. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, like, they just decided, and then, like, last minute, they were like, just make it a helicopter chase. <laughs> Which is the correct choice yeah. for that first movie, by the way. Yeah. Um. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, uncredited work on Crimson Tide. Well, a bunch of fucking people did uncredited work on Crimson Tide. Yeah, Tarantino did uncredited yeah. work on Crimson Tide. Like, That's not an, uh, an awards contender, 
But I would love to fucking talk about Crimson Tide. I would love to talk about Crimson Tide, yeah. too. I mean, That's a fucking... We could just do a whole series on submarine movies, because I fucking love submarine movies. Okay. Or, uh, oh, like, then uh, Hunt for Red October. Yeah, there, there's stuff yeah, there. Hunt for Red October, uh, Ice Station Zebra. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I only saw that Run recently. Silent, Run Deep. Um, we could sneak in fucking Rathacon because that's kind yeah, of yeah, 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 submarine totally. movie in space. Um, um, but before before we talk about what we're actually gonna do next, or you know, I'll do that instead, and then you can do your plugs. We're doing Cloud Atlas next. Yes. You all know Cloud yeah. Atlas, right? Yeah. And what's crazy about Cloud Atlas, just like not to give away anything, is that that's it's. It's six stories simultaneously, right? Mm-hmm. Across what I think adds up to be like a thousand years. <laughs> like Yeah, it's literal generations. Generations upon generations. Interwoven together, told over three hours, it is significantly more coherent <laughs> than Tough Guys Don't Dance. Yeah, if you want to understand, like, editing, be sure to check out our episode on... Uh... Or no, check out... Cloud Atlas, and then come check out our episode after that. There yes. you go. Yes. Uh, all right, Matt, where can the people find you? I'm an emperor, OTN1, at twitter.com, and I might be doing other stuff, but I'll announce it on Twitter. All right, <laughs> and you can find me at the Diego Cresswell. Check out the Waffle Press on Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and Patreon, where you can get early access to hopefully the Cloud Atlas episode. I delayed Book of Henry so we can keep getting episodes out early. Uh, so you'll you'll have a little something there. I'm um, back to doing a little just, just casual uh, is Book of Henry, writing. as of right now, Book of Henry isn't out. Is that coming out next? Book of Henry is coming out before this one, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Book of Henry will be out before this one. That's 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 what I was saying, so. Do you want more positivity? No. <laughs> uh, let's see, what am I, what am I doing? Uh, I still intend I'm still on, texting I'm writing about Diego. Ted Lasso. It's been, uh, I just, it's it, been like three weeks since the Book of Henry episode. I'm still texting Diego with problems I had with that fucking movie. yeah. It's not great. It's not great. Not good. Not good at all. Unlike this film. Sorry about interrupting your Ted Lasso. No, No, I I just intend on writing about Ted Lasso because the new season's coming out eventually. Uh, Let's see what else. What else? Uh, Peacemaker. I like Peacemaker a lot. I wrote about it. I wrote about why I liked it a lot, and you should all check it out. That and the show. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally unprofessional. Bye. Bolo! <laughs> Giant death orgy with lots of maniacs. Oh man! Oh god! Oh man! Nothing rotten has happened. One of the best and most original films I've ever seen. It was brilliant. One of the worst ever. My grandmother could do better. I agree. You agree on what? Excellent, crazy entertainment. Very funny. <laughs> Gross. Sleazy. Garbage. It was no small job. Quick turns of plot. Enjoyed having to think. Whoever wrote this has never read a good book. You think it's simple? Well, here, go ahead. You pull the trigger. He's being set up. Set up for what? Murder one. Look at me and see a crude man. I look at you and see a sitting duck. That guy is no chief of police. I want to see you die. I want to make you crazy. Don't ask me how I know. My husband, he's having an affair with your wife. Both sides of my nature are obliged to express themselves. The enforcer and the maniac. And who do we have the honor of addressing? You never met the maniac. Ryan O'Neill, Isabella Rossellini, Wings Hauser. The devil made this picture. 
in Norman Mailer's Tough Guys Don't Dance.